This evening we'll be considering the Word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2, and this evening's text is verses 27 through 36. You'll find that on page 226, but before you turn fully there and we hear the word of God, let's pause. We're about to hear the word of God. We're in the presence of his majesty, and it's right and it's good that we humble ourselves and ask that we would hear really here, the God of all glory. Let's pray. Our Father, blessed God, to you belong all honor and glory. To you all creation will at last give its praise and even the most stubborn knee bow to give glory and honor to the Father by glorifying the Son. We come this evening with just a very small awareness of what we are really engaged in. And we plead for a greater sense of the gravity and the glory with which we meet when we enter into the presence of our God in heaven. We are not worthy to stand before you And yet you speak to us. You speak in order that we may hear and hearing, remember and remembering, do and doing delight. God, we pray that tonight you would cause our very dull hearts to hear and our very weak minds and lives to overflow with your glory. Come to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I have commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of God. And you can imagine just what an uncommon thing this is in the days in which these words come because we read at the beginning of chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. This is an uncommon word. And yet it comes to Eli the priest when we considered just a little while back from the earlier portion speaking of his sons and their sins and Samuel and his faithfulness. The word of the Lord comes the name of the prophet isn't recorded. It's an interesting thing. You might think that here in such an uncommon time, his name at least would be given to us. But there is something else at work in this passage. We are not meant to know his name because this is about who gets the glory. So the prophet gets out of the spotlight that God's word of judgment might shine on this sneering, cynical, unbelieving priesthood. Now we read in chapter 2 how Eli warned his sons of their wicked behavior, and that seems a little bit of a stopgap measure. He does nothing about it. It's weak. It's pointless. And now God makes a declaration to Eli. You can just imagine receiving this threat yourself, being told that your descendants will be utterly impoverished. None of them will live to old age. All of them will die violent deaths. Some legacy. A terrible warning. A warning to us, but also a vindication of God's honor. If you're thinking of a way to summarize the text this evening, I'm going to do it this way, that God honors us when we honor the Son. God honors us when we honor his Son. In verses 27 through 29, we have a charge from God that tells us of Eli's complicity and his culpability. God opens this prophecy with questions that are rhetorical. Did I indeed, did the Lord indeed reveal himself to Aaron and ultimately to his son Ithamar? The answer is, well, what is it? Of course he did, yes. Did the Lord also choose Aaron and his sons to be his priests? Yes, he did. And then we get to investigative questions. Eli's now under the microscope. Then why are you scorning and despising my offerings and honoring your sons above me? Up till now, it's easy to see Eli just as a grieved father with a weak backbone and difficulty controlling his sons. Listen, however, to what it says. Verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices, and my offerings. Why then do you honor your sons above me? Two crimes with which Eli is charged together with his sons, contempt, a stepping upon the sacrifices that God has commanded, and honoring his sons above the Lord. Think of that. Dishonoring the God of the universe but privileging his sons, his wicked sons, in a way he doesn't even honor God. And he does this, in short, and they do it, by dishonoring the sacrifices that are presented in the temple. Here's Eli. 
with sons who don't glorify God, and Eli glorifies them. This is significant. We need to appreciate the gravity of this. Because the sacrifices of the Old Testament are a type of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In making little of these Old Testament sacrifices, Eli and his sons are making little of Jesus and despising the cross. And that is a serious matter, isn't it? This is, in other words, not just a simple thing of, well, you know, how do we spend the offerings? It's not even, well, you know, it's a matter of personal preference. Some people do it this way. Other churches do it that way. This is about redemption and God's honor in his son. We can only honor God rightly when we honor his mediator and his sacrifice. We only ever honor the father when we honor the son who perfectly knows the heart and the mind of the father. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son. Jesus declares in those wonderful words of the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Who has given him all that authority? The Father. As our mediator, he receives it. And to what end? That they may honor the Son and honor the Father by the Son. So what is Eli's real view of this God that he is commissioned to serve? His God is very small. He's a God who doesn't require perfect obedience. A God who doesn't apparently notice when he's dishonored or maybe can't do anything about it or just doesn't care enough about sin to require payment for these kinds of things. <coughs> and who really isn't going to send his son in the fullness of time. A God without glory. A God without goodness, without grace. A God without weight and a God without power. A God without that wonderful Hebrew word kavod, glory. Now this is a good point at which we can practically ask ourselves the question, how did we get here? Or maybe even how do we get there? How does the heart, even the heart of such a one as apparently so devoted to the outward things of God, pressed into his ministry and service, slip from the adoration and glory of God, from giving it to him as we should? I think it's easy to kind of blame Eli and say, well, you know, what a rotten priest. What an everyday problem this really is, however. Can you not see this deterioration in yourself? Can you not see a declining in your own heart? It's really a statement about us. When we come to the end of Judges, which prepares us to walk into Samuel, when it says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We are a people desperately needing to be ruled or we will do whatever we feel like. And justify it. We begin to fall away from the adoration and honor of God when we fight for glory. Our fleshly desires and prioritize what we find to be pleasing and right and good rather than the purity of God and His Word. 
Maybe it comes about because of a season of heartache and trouble. could be stirred up by particular temptations. But to stop that decline, there is no hope unless there is a good king, a right king, and a right mediator who God in this passage promises to provide. There must be a king to rule us. There must be a mediator, a priest, to go between God and his people. And this is what God's people do as we recognize that declining, that continual deteriorating and falling away that we have by our nature in ourselves, even as believers, we submit ourselves to God and plead with him once again that Christ would deliver us in his authority and mediation and lead us as we ought. This is the message that comes to Eli. Eli has seen his sins, or seen his sons rather, and their sins. And here he is, apparently really not repenting himself. He's quick to rebuke them, but doesn't. Even in bemoaning the departure of his children from the faith, he is plainly doing it as well. We don't find Eli weeping and grieving and lamenting for his sins. And I would suggest there is another practical lesson here that when our children begin to drift from Christ, it is too easy for us to let grief and anxiety become our fixation because, after all, we did our best. It's our honor that's at stake, but it is not our honor that is at stake. It's the honor of God. We ought, yes, to grieve, but anxiously seek the glory of God for them. This is the key issue here. Will we honor, for parents, our children, or will we honor our God? You could put anything else into that blank if you like. Will we honor any particular thing, any particular desire, particular achievement, a person, something in creation? If God is not more to us than our children or than anything else, then he does not receive the honor from us that is his rightful due. If he is not more to us, in other words, than the best things, and our children really are our best things, if he is not more delightful to us than anything in the present world, we think far too little of him, and this rebuke is for us. It's a rather bald application, but it's there, I think. We ought to cherish our children. We ought to care for them. We ought to love them, especially bring them with us to heaven as best as God enables us to do. But it is surely a significant thing that Abraham is commanded to offer his son. His hope of a legacy is tied up in Isaac. For parents, this is how we really think about our children. The coming generation, that's our name. This is our investment. This is what we hope will carry forward. And in some measure, not entirely wrongly, our hopes are bound up in their lives. We hope that they'll succeed, that they'll do well, maybe that they'll be better and more loving, more godly than we are. But if they are the pinnacle of our hopes, if they are our glory, if our greatest desire is for them, even if that seems like a good thing, I'm loving them after all, then we are too easily satisfied and our God has shrunk to the size of Eli's little idol. You may call him God over all blessed forever, but he is really God among other gods. And he says he will not share his glory with another. He says, indeed, that he must alone be God to us. Here's an aged man doing this, a man of long faith. Do not imagine that age breeds godliness. 
God gives godliness. Do not imagine that growing to love your children is what will be pleasing to God if, at last, it is not his glory that you desire even more. And so how easily our own hearts, like Eli, transfer glory from the one to whom it is due and give it to another. How easily we lose focus on God himself, on whom alone we ought continually to be gazing, who ought to fill all of our heart with delight and joy. Can you see this in yourself? This is the natural inclination and tendency that we have to lose an appreciation for the beauty and the glory of Christ over all else. And you can see here, friends, that salvation really is all of grace because this is our natural tendency to take something else and value it in the place of God. And if he himself doesn't continually uphold his people, we will continually fall. Now we come to the hinge verse, which is verse 30. Must God go back on his promises in order to safeguard his honor? Far be it from me, he says, to continue these promises that I have made to your family. These promises to Levi, must he break them? That would make him to be unfaithful. That would dishonor him. But you see, the promise of this priesthood given to Aaron is a promise only given to a priest and to people that will honor him. And so the Lord says, it's a very short statement in the Hebrew, just four words. It's a little lengthy in our English. The one honoring me, I will honor. Those despising me will be, to put it in vernacular, they're going to be the lightweights. I want you to see what God is saying here. This is important. It's a proverb in a way a little bit like Proverbs 1.7. Maybe you remember this proverb. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom or knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, is this a sort of a kind of a wisdom statement where, you know, God is saying, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back? Absolutely not. To honor and to revere God is our highest honor. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? God just says, well, I'll give you wisdom if you'll do this for me. No, because it is wisdom to fear him. It is honor then also to honor the living God. And the essence of honoring God is his worship, adoration, and respect, his fear, which he deserves from all the creatures that he has made. And he requires whatever the condition we we are in and whatever we feel, this is our chief and highest end, and it is our chief and highest joy and honor to disclose his honor to the world. And true honor then comes as we humble ourselves, enter into true fellowship with him by honoring the Son. Consider what God is really saying. You seek after honor for yourself and you will lose all real honor. Seek your life, Jesus says, you'll lose it. But what? For my sake, lose your life. And you will gain it. This is what we do in honoring the Son, isn't it? It is an honor to Christ 
that we would lose our life for him. That could be through persecution. It could be by those daily deaths of not talking back when we'd really like to. But to die for Christ, to die to ourselves, is to honor him and really, at last, to live and to live in honor. Now, there is another nuance to this proverb. Because it doesn't say, those who honor me, I shall honor. It says, the one who honors me. It's pretty specific. The one who honors me, I will honor. Glory and weight and heft and substance and meaning will be at the heart of his life and ministry and word. This is the purpose of the priesthood. This is what Eli is supposed to be, and not only as a priest, but also as a judge. He is there to uphold the integrity of God's honor before God and before his people. God has made a covenant in love for his people to secure and enter into fellowship with us. But how can he do that when we are sinners? How can he do that without himself being defiled? How can the bridge, the gap rather, be bridged between a holy God and an unholy people? Well, there has to be a mediator. There has to be a go-between. There must be one who is a priest to come from God to us and from us to God to make atonement for the sins of the people by an accepted sacrifice to vindicate the honor of God's covenant in choosing sinners like us. That's what the priesthood is. The vindication of God's righteous judgment and covenanting for the life of an unholy people. God is saying, the one who so honors me, I will honor. We know that this is pointing to Jesus, don't we? The one who vindicates the honor of God by presenting himself as sacrifice, by coming as priest for us, a great mediator, to vindicate God's righteous judgment. And what about that other priesthood, Eli's and his sons? They despise, and they will be lightly esteemed like so much chaff floating off into the wind to despise God, to deride or hate him, to withhold the honor that's due to him will put you into the position where God, and you notice this, it doesn't say, I will despise them. That's kind of what we expect, isn't it? No, it puts you into the position of simply being ignored and not regarded at all. God will close his ears to their requests, and they shall be as nothing. Think of this, my dear friend. To dishonor God is not to injure him, but at last to be of no account at all. Now, you might be asking yourself a good question. Is it possible we could ever actually take away from God's glory? No, it's an essential attribute of his deity. But we may cover it. We may obscure it rather than testify to it. We may, in our own selves, withhold from him that righteous praise that he deserves and try to clothe ourselves and some idol, but we were made for honor. We were made to honor God, and in that honor, find our honor. Think of Adam in the garden. He was made, 
just a little lower than the angels. That is a position of the greatest honor. He was given glory. He was given a dominion. He was given the blessing of God. We were made for honor. But that honor was intended to be in relationship and exclusively in relationship with the God who made us. And we, having fallen so very far from that glory in which we were created, look for it in all the wrong ways. We're so twisted that we look for honor and for glory in sports events and work milestones and checking our boxes and making sure our families at least appear to be under control, at least when they get to church, and being listened to. And getting the good things. Being treated with respect. We look for honor, for weight, to overcome the vanity of the curse. We do this sometimes in marriage, in family, in parenting, and isn't this perhaps really part of what's at the root of many of our real and deep problems in relationships? We want respect. We were made for honor, and we're going to get it. We're going to get it. Even if we have to force the issue like Eli's sons and go over to the flesh pots and start grabbing whatever we want, we're going to get it. There is no honor but only disregard. Should we so seek the restoration of our honor? Our honor can only be restored when the honor of God is vindicated and upheld. And that can only happen when the Son is honored. And so God pronounces death upon the house of Eli, which is necessary for his honor to be restored. They must be lightly esteemed. And we find this in verses 31 through 34. They will be treated lightly. And should we likewise find others to honor than the living God, even if it's ourself, we will be completely dishonored. The word here for disregard or uh, there in verse 30 where it says they will be lightly esteemed is a Hebrew word, halal, which also can mean curse. And it's, I think, significant that that would be used. Here's the curse. Here's the light esteem. Your people are not going to live to old age. They're all going to die by the sword. And this is the sign, Eli, your sons, both of your sons, both of whom are supposed to inherit the legacy of the priesthood, both, a sign to you, will die on the same day. And we read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Those reversals that Hannah was glorifying in God, the God who can overcome barrenness, who can trample on the proud and feed the hungry are already coming to pass. God will vindicate his honor and he will do that in redemption, which at last comes to us and is fulfilled in his son because the crown rights of Jesus must be preserved. His enemies must be crushed. He must be honored. Now, sometimes when we come to a text like this, and maybe if we have a slight Marcionite inclination in our hearts, we read a text like this and ask ourselves, is perhaps the God of the Old Testament just a little bit vindictive here? I mean, is it really that bad? Is it really that bad? Well, would you think it were so bad if someone were to come and to keep you from all 
that would bring you into life and honor and glory and communion with God. If you had someone come to your house with a gun to take your life, you would think that was bad. How much worse when someone who is supposed to be a minister of redemption in Christ would come and seek to get for himself the honor that is only God's alone. And thereby to rob you of your chief end and your greatest glory. Isn't that an evil thing? It is right for God so to hate this wickedness. He hates it and he requires the death of Eli's sons because he is so filled with an infinite love for you that he will not allow anything to separate you from his love and from the enjoyment of his beauty, his worthiness, his righteousness, and his holiness. Everything else is light. Everything else is vain. And our lives will be without meaning and significance if his honor is not vindicated. The universe is disordered until he is honored. And when we honor him, we find ourselves in the right place, in the position of true honor, as those he accepts as righteous in his sight, sons and daughters of God. We are honored to be those who honor our God. Think of what this means. To be the son of a king would be a very great honor, wouldn't it? To be the servant and the worshiper and the one who lifts up the name of the Most High God is a position of greatest honor because it declares your true relationship to God. That you belong in his presence. That he accepts your worship. That he is pleased when you draw near and will listen to your prayers. And so God, in vindicating his honor by the death of his enemies, will actually bring about our great joy. And we see in verse 35, and drawing near to the end, how God will raise up and permanently establish his, his faithful priest for his honor and for our good. A priest, he says, notice, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Who is this priest? Well, we can read of his descriptions, faithful to the heart and the mind of God. A priest who really honors God by knowing the deep thoughts of God and acting according to them. Access to those things that are in God's very depths and fulfilling all that righteousness that is in him by a faithful doing of all that brings him honor and glory. He's a priest because of his faithfulness who will have an enduring house, just as God later promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. He would build him an enduring house so that when the floods and the rains of tribulation come and beat upon the house, it will endure. And it's resting upon the word, the covenant of God. This is what God determines to give to his priest. Not just faithfulness, but a house that can never be moved, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, whose thirdly office will be in perfect harmony with the king. He will go in and out before my anointed continually. You see how there's a need for a king 
But you can see that there's a desperate need for a complete revolution in the priesthood. The kingdom of God must come in by one who will be such a faithful mediator. Again, who is this priest? Could it be the sons of Samuel of whom this prophet is speaking? Well, certainly the Lord is preparing the way for Samuel, who will take over from Eli. But it isn't Samuel whose priesthood is going to endure forever. We know this from history. And let's face it, I think most people know, even though it's hard for some of us to admit in the pulpit that PKs struggle a little bit, priest kids. And we read in 1 Samuel 8 that when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And this is clearly not the priesthood that God intends to set up, a faithful priesthood. So who then? Could it be the ministers of the gospel by type? Well, in a small way, we are to be representatives of the faithful priest, knowing and acting upon the heart of God, and then that faithful heart of God carried out in the priesthood of all believers through the pastorate and the eldership and all those offices Christ has given to his church. But there is no pastor and no minister and no elder who is that good, who is that faithful in our best moments. We still see ourselves filled with so much remaining corruption so that without a shadow of a doubt, we can say ourselves, we need a better priest. It's clearly not the ministers of the gospel that God is calling to be such a priest. We need one who will really bring in the honor of God and restore the honor of mankind through his priesthood. Who is this priest? Beyond all doubt, beyond all question, the one whom angels and men adore, the righteous and holy, the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Remember what Jesus says about the judgment that is given into his hand. For what purpose? That all might honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. This really is New Testament worship under types and shadows. It's the gospel given to you again. To honor the Father is to honor the Son in the fullness of his divine and mediatorial office, not just as a judge, but as a redeemer. And we honor him when we turn from our self-honor. Isn't that really what self-righteousness is? Think I'm pretty good? God's going to be happy with me. Even if he isn't, I'm happy with myself. When we honor the Son, we humbly acknowledge that he alone deserves the honor and the praise. He alone has secured and vindicated the honor of God. He, therefore, alone can liberate us and bring us at last to that glory for which we were made. And so there is good news in this judgment, isn't there? Certainly a warning to Eli, a warning to his sons, which we find they do not heed, a warning to us by all means, but it's good news. It is good news when Jesus Christ destroys all that stands in the way of God's honor. It's him acting as our priest to vindicate God's righteous covenant.
The Son of God has been lightly esteemed, but now has all honor and glory. And because of him, we enter in by him and him alone to true and solid and lasting honor. Dear people of God, you are not lightly esteemed in him. Not ignored and disregarded. Though that is what we have sometimes done to our God. In Jesus Christ, we are restored. Not simply to the place of Adam but to sit at the right hand of God together with the Son. These are the privileges and the rights, the honors, the titles and privileges that we have as sons and daughters of God by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise that all the honor and glory is yours, and your Son has given you that honor that you deserve. And so we honor the Son. We give all praise and thanks and adoration and Worthiness to you, O Jesus, for you were slain. You've given your life for sinners. You've ransomed for God all those people on which you, O Father, have set your love. What great glory, what vindication, what honor is yours, even in loving us utterly unworthy and dishonorable ones. We pray that we might live to honor the Son, that his glory and the Father's glory in him might be the whole and circumference of every hope and ambition that all our desire would be set on this one great object, to give you, O God, glory with all our life, our words, our theology, our homes and families, our humility, our trials, and even our death. And eternity. Oh God, receive from your, pra- for your people the praise this evening and adoration that is yours. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.